Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, and today we're going to celebrate the 66th uh, year of the beginning of the Cuban Revolution by uh, listening to a speech that uh, the ambassador, the Cuban ambassador to Australia gave uh, on Sunday, which is uh, at the Unitarian Church. Uh, There was big celebrations uh, held by the Cuban-Australian Friendship Society on uh, Sunday and uh, the ambassador came to speak. And it's interesting because this is an important period for Cuban history and world history because, of course, the Trump administration in the US have decided to uh, re-establish the embargo on uh, uh, Cuba, and they're increasing the. Uh, they've stopped the Obama uh, a push to uh, break down the barriers between the two countries, and uh, the, he's uh, decided. Trump's decided that uh, they're going to uh, set up the barriers all over again and increase have uh, greater amounts of uh, um, uh, barriers for Cuba uh, than uh, before. So uh, it's a timely time to hear from the ambassador to find out what he has to say about this particular issue. We're going to move on to find out about what's going on in West Papua and uh, we're going to move after that to uh, having a conversation about uh, conservatism, hopefully, with Humphrey, uh, Humphrey McQueen, and we'll also have a bit of a bit of a laugh coming from the uh, Green Left weekly comedy debate from last week uh, as we move on. But remember this. Oh, we can't because it's not doing anything. Never mind. Let's go on to the ambassador straight away. I'm sure you've read about the fact that the President of the United States, Trump, has reapplied all the sanctions on Cuba and even applied some new ones that haven't been there up till now. So um, we're all looking forward to hearing from the ambassador. So it's my great privilege uh, to introduce the Cuban ambassador to Australia, His Excellency Mr Ariel Lorenzo Rodriguez. And he's arrived in Australia earlier this year, so I'm sure he's steadily uh, learning about Australian life and the system here and all the rest of it. But it's a great privilege for us to have him here, so I'll ask him to come up and speak to us this afternoon. Thanks very much.
Well, first I would like to, to talk a little bit about uh, the complex international scenario where Cuba has to, to develop his, his foreign policy. We can see that uh, it prevails the U.S. The decision to try to preserve uni, unipolar domination. So this is on a daily basis you can see this kind of uh, unilateral policy, you know, in all the matters of the, of the international arena. And also uh, with the uh, Trump administration, uh, we can see a resurgence of ruthless protectionism that is affecting trade relations with uh, many countries. In the case of our region, uh, we are facing the Monroe Doctrine versus the proclamation of Latin America, the Caribbean as a, uh, as a peak zone. The LAC summit that was held in Havana in 2014, in January, 33 head of the states of the Latin America and the Caribbean uh, signed this proclamation that uh, declares the region as a zone of peace with the new U.S. administration has come back to the region, the doctrine Monroe, that it means that uh, you can resume is, uh, the, the motto of the you know, America for the Americans. It's a very complex uh, situation. Also, in this complex international scenario, we, uh, we can see the U.S. confrontation with Russia and China, as well as other regional poles, you know, including Europe. A high level of volatility and conflict uh, with threatened international peace and security. Also, the positioning of government of right-wing forces in many countries. In the case of Cuba and its international position in the war, so we have currently diplomatic relations with uh, 198 states, orders, and institutions all over the world. We have embassies in 120 countries and three permanent missions in international agencies. 115 embassies uh, and six representations of international organizations are present in Cuba. For the Cuban foreign policy, all of this has been, we have a, a, a staying our presence in all over the world. In 1959, uh, with the triumph of the Cuban Revolution, we have diplomatic relations with only 51 countries. And as I said, you know, in 2019, we have 198 countries as well as with the diplomatic representatives in Cuba. In 1959, we only had 34, and now we have 121. So, we recently approved a popular referendum and proclaimed by the National Assembly by, of People's Power in April 10, 2019, the new constitution that's a very comprehensive. It's adapted to the current times we are facing, not only in Cuba, but, but in the world. The key factor of this uh, new constitution is that uh, we keep all the principles of, of Cuban revolution and all the rights that uh, we have developed and performed during the last 60 years. And the continuity of the revolution with the new leadership uh, and also the continuity to, uh, for the construction of the uh, socialism with, uh, you know, adapted to the, to the current times. In 2018, the GDP has grown 1.2%, uh, and the plan for this year, we estimate a growth of 1.5% in the gross domestic product. It prevails in a tense situation in external finances due to the non-compliance with planned revenues from exports, tourism, and sugar production. Also, we have to, to, add that, uh, to add to this information that uh, the damage caused uh, by the prolonged drought, followed by the strategy of Hurricane Irma, 
and then the occurrence of heavy rains have affected the arrival of raw materials, equipment, and supplies. As you are aware, you know, uh, the location of Cuba in the middle of the Caribbean, you know, is uh, very bad for, for us at the point of view of the weather and the climate change because we are in the root of the hurricanes that uh, forms in the Atlantic Ocean and from June to November. This is the hurricane season in, in, in Cuba. Almost every year we suffer, you know, this kind of phenomenon and that uh, causes also, you know, a lot of uh, uh, damage, you know. The intensification of the blockade and the financial persecution have also hampered development. This is the main obstacle for, for the development of, of the Cuban economy. You know, uh, we are suffering the, the blockade since uh, uh, 60 years. Well, despite such a complex situation, we continue defending the right to health and free and universal education uh, is guaranteed in our, in our country. Expenditures in these two sectors, uh, health and education, represent you know, 51% of, of the national budget. As you are aware, you know, the general education in Cuba, we have a very comprehensive system with uh, 10,718 educational institutions. In the higher education, we have 50 universities with an enrollment of 250,000 students. In the case of the health sector, we have 95,486 physicians. Our infant mortality is 4.0 per every 1,000 live births, one of the best in the world, even better than the U.S. Life expectancy is 78.4 years. Uh, 13 universities, 25 medical faculties, the Latin American School of Medicine, that as you know, they have received a lot of students, you know, from Asia, Africa, and Latin America to study medicine in Cuba. Um, in the sphere of the health cooperation, we have, uh, you know, 29,000 Cuban collaborators in, 60, in 65 countries, 10,000 10, uh, 10, of them are, you know, as I said earlier, you know, the threatening of the blockade, you know, has a new chapter with the activation of the Title III on the Hans-Borton Act. Uh, you know, it, it was a, a measure took uh, on May the 2nd of this year, which allows uh, U.S. nationals, including Cuban-Americans who are Cuban citizens, uh, to, at the time of the nationalization, to sue in U.S. courts those who traffic. American properties in Cuba, which also includes national and companies from third countries. You know, this is a very controversial uh, act. So far, there are around nine cases in courts in U.S. due to the, there is in the process of legal actions. But at the end, the main objective of this act is to create an environment of fear of going to Cuba to do business or to do foreign investment because, you know, the threat to, that you can be uh, sued uh, in a U.S. court is, is something that is happening, you know, the, 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 our relations uh, with, uh, with other countries. This uh, measure, of course, dangerous to enforce the blockade against Cuba, violates international law, and directly attacks the sovereignty and interests of third countries. Of course, Cuba has rejected, you know, this measure in the most forceful, free and categorical way, repudiating the glandular language of the statements about it by the main representative of the U.S. administration. This uh, situation getting worse and worse. Even this transport on act is, uh, was signed in 1996 by the President Clinton. The title three was 
follow its own hold. But right now, this is a very controversial, you know, thing that, that uh, recently, as you are aware, you know, in, in June, last month, new measures have been taken. They prohibited, you know, the visit of, of vessels and private aircraft trips and monetary remittances. During the last period of the, the last, the second government of Obama, you know, many things have improved uh, during the bilateral regulations. We signed several agreements of cooperation. They authorized the airlines to travel to Cuba and also the cruises. The current U.S. administration, you know, has been very aggressive towards everything was achieved during the, during the Obama government. In June, uh, cruises with uh, thousands of tourists, a U.S. tourist that is, you know, going to Cuba in the middle of the sea, you know, they stop it and have to come back because, you know, they suspended, you know, this kind of uh, visits. And during the Trump administration, well, they, they have implemented sanctions against uh, 12 third countries' companies. Uh, after six decades, after 60 years of revolutions, the accumulated losses due to the blockade have reached nine. $922.6 billion. One of the sectors that, that has been attacked very seriously has been the banking and the financial institutions. Since 2004 up to April 2019, several banks all over the world have been fined for uh, trade or for uh, trade transactions with Cuba. There are banks here from Switzerland, uh, from the Netherlands, uh, you know, from France, uh, different parts of the world. And in July 2014, the BNP Paribas, this is a French bank, uh, agreed to pay a fine of $8.7 billion to the U.S. Treasury because they lie with the, with the, law, the blockade law. When you see that a bank can pay a fine of $8.7 billion. We're talking about, you know, it's like a GDP of small country. This is the, the meaning of, you know, how powerful is, is U.S. in this. Regarding the international community against the blockade, well, you know that the, we present every year in the General Assembly of United Nations a, a resolution calling from the ending of the financial commercial blockade against Cuba. The resolution last year was approved by overwhelming majority, 189 votes in favor, only two against, that was, uh, you know, U.S. and Israel. In November, we are going again to present this, uh, this resolution once again. The blockade and the aggressive anti-Cuban rhetoric intensified from the highest levels of government. The decision of the U.S. State Department in March of last year to reduce the number of U.S. diplomatic personnel in Havana is politically motivated and has no re uh, relation to the security of U.S. officials. You can see that uh, in the recent days, you know, rise again the, the issue of the health incidents, you know, of U.S. diplomats in, in Cuba. They call it, you know, the famous sonic attacks, and, but no evidence, you know, no proof has been, you know, uh, shown about that, but it was, you know, the pretext and the excuse to uh, remove all the U.S. personnel from and consular personnel from the uh, U.S. Embassy in Havana, and they expelled 15 diplomats from our uh, embassy in Washington. And right now, 
uh, a Q1 uh, if they want to apply for a visa, any kind of visa. They have to travel to a third country. In our case, they have to travel to Mexico or to Guyana or to there. This is Guyana, Mexico, to apply for a visa without no assurances that the visa has been granted. So you can imagine you have to pay for a ticket, you have to pay for accommodation, the meals, and so on. But at the end, so they create you know frustration on the people. You know this is the indefinite suspension of the of the issuances of visas at the U.S. consulate in Havana affect bilateral ties as well as the family ties between both countries. Nevertheless, you know, in 2018, the number of U.S. citizens who visited Cuba increased more than 639-191 entries, of which uh, 585,000 were directly from the U.S. You know that uh, it is forbidden for the U.S. citizens to travel to Cuba. To do so, they have to apply for a special license that is issued by the State Department. So this kind of license has 12 categories. So you have to apply for one of those categories. They have to authorize, and later they have to approve. We feel that some searchers in, inside the U.S. that uh, you know are in favor of the constructive bilateral relationship, according to the organization Engage Cuba, 24 out of the 25 Democratic, Democratic candidates favor an improvement in relation of the lifting of the blockade. So this is, we are talking about the uh, next uh, 2020 elections. Um, so this is the numbers of the organization Engage Cuba. No, this is not our, our numbers. To finish, I would like to quote about our president, Miguel Diaz-Canel, on the speech, uh, you know, last Friday in, in the gathering in the Grandma province in order to commemorate the 66th anniversary of the attacks on Moncada Barracks in Santiago de Cuba and Carlos Manuel de Cepeda in Bayam, a feat led by Fidel Castro on which started the Cuban Revolution. It was a very interesting speech with a lot of messages. Um, let me quote some of them. The revolution now needs us to unleash a great battle for our defense and economy to break the enemy's plan to destroy us and asphyxiate us. The siege is being increasingly incitement around our country, around Venezuela, Nicaragua, and any other nation that refused to accept the imperial plan for its destiny. Today, before the people of Cuba and the world, we denounce that the U.S. administration for beginning to act more aggressively and to prevent the delivery of fuel to Cuba. This is something that is, you know, happened since the last week. They are stopping, you know, ships uh, of fuel is going to Cuba. The genocidal plan is to affect even more the population's quality of life, its progress, and even its hopes, with the objective of hurting Cuban families in daily life, in their basic needs, and accuse the Cuban government of being ineffective. They are seeking a social explosion from inside. Ignorant of history and the Cuban Revolution's foreign policy principles, they propose to negotiate a possible a possible reconciliation with us in exchange for abandoning the course choosing and defended by our people. They suggested betraying friends, throwing 50 years of opportunity into the trash bin. Any proposal that departs from respect among equals does not interest us. And as for the US people, they are always invited to Cuba. Our doors are open. Come, see, and get to know the reality of of the country you are not allowed to visit. 
in the name of freedom, an essential human right that they say is lacking in Cuba and abundance there. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. It was pretty interesting to hear what the ambassador, the Cuban ambassador, had to say, and it was very up to the minute in regards to the American uh, approach to Cuba, the idea of uh, stopping ships with fuel, etc. That is really ramping things up. Uh, There were a few questions that people asked, and so I think it was worth just giving you the answers that the ambassador had to give because... uh, it's important to understand uh, uh, what it's like right at this moment. We enjoy a very good relation with uh, China and Russia and Vietnam and many other countries. Of course, uh, we have a special links, mainly with China, Vietnam, there is a socialist country, you are more from the political point of view, uh, as well as Russia. In the recent years, of course, we have increased you know, the trade relation with them and also the economic relation. But we are, you know, confident that uh, we have to build our economy and to build our, our country with our own, you know, forces. We have to create our own resources. We have to be more efficient. We have to be more uh, productive. We have to explore more things that, uh, uh, for example, uh, one thing is very heavy to our economy is that uh, we import every year 2000 Two billion dollars only in food. Um, half of these imports of food, there is some studies that we can produce inside the country. So half of them. So the the call is to be more uh, effective, you know, efficient to produce the food that we need, not to 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 import. It's more easy to import, you know, but at the same time, it's more difficult to get the money to get this food. We have to rely on our own forces, capabilities to, to perform our economy, and at the same time to keep and to continue strengthening the relation with countries like China, Russia, Vietnam, and so on. But uh, I think the, the, the key factor is to, to build, you know, from our own forces. Well, uh, in the case of the Latin American region, you know, in the last uh, 30 years, you can see that uh, this kind of, you know, right-wing governments, left governments, you know, has been, you know, like uh, for periods, you know. Um, uh, we enjoy a period where we have, you know, a lot of uh, left uh, and progressive governments uh, in the region. Right now, we have, on the contrary, in this moment, you know, uh, in Mexico, you can see that, uh, you know, Lopez Obrador won the elections. This is a ray of hope for, for the region. Mexico is an important country in the Latin American and the Caribbean, you know, region. Cuba is trying to, to have, you know, a respectful and, and cordial relation with all the countries. Uh, with some of them, you know, it's very, it's, it's very difficult to, to keep this this way. But we continue developing our relation with other countries that, uh, you know, like Venezuela, Nicaragua, and some other countries that following more or less our uh, process and way of thinking, you know. And uh, uh, it's very difficult to, to, to predict what, what, what's going on, you know, in the, uh, in the near future. But this, it's, there, there is, a, a period, uh, there is a, a, um, some cycles, you know, that happens in, in politics and in our region is 
has been since the last uh, 30 years has been, you know, in this way. Uh, we are doing our best in, in this regard. Uh, we only request, you know, respect, um, you know, um, according to relation, when, when the relation is not in, in, uh, like this, so we, we have to, uh, to, to, uh, uh, to coordinate with other countries and to create, you know, a, 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 you know, a group that can confront with this kind of advance. Right now, there is a Lima group that is a very, you know, right-wing group in, in Latin America. Uh, but uh, let's see what's going on in, in the near future. Since uh, November last year, 2018, the, the government of Brazil, you know, Cuba canceled contract due to the aggressive policy um, attitude of the, of the Brazilian government. We are 8,000 doctors, not 4,000, 8,000. Uh, all of them, you know, come back to Cuba because Brazilian government, they don't guarantee the, the safety and the conditions to work in that uh, country. We have learned that uh, since the Cuban doctors have left these rural areas where they perform their duties, the Brazilian government has been unable to uh, fill all the, the gaps and all the positions that uh, because as, as you said, it is where, you know, the Cuban doctors normally, they don't go to the cities, so they are going to the remote areas where the needs are more heavy, where, you know, there is not any facilities or not any doctors. Um, this is the case of, of, of Brazil, you know. Well, in the case of Trump, you know, it's, it's a, we can say that a, a, uh, you know, Cuba for U.S. is, uh, we are a, a, a tiny island, you know, only 11 million people. So in the terms of foreign policy, we are not, you know, a priority for U.S. So priorities are, you know, the big powers, you know, regions. Are. But in the case of Cuba, uh, you know, uh, Trump, the Trump, uh, Trump himself has been, you know, uh, has uh, like, um, you know, uh, um, some politicians in a very, you know, high-ranking positions in the U.S. government, like uh, National Security Advisor John Bolton, Senator Marco Rubio. There are very, you know, right-winged uh, politicians, uh, anti-Cubans, not, not from now, from, you know, from many years ago. And to be anti-Cuban in the U.S. is a source of, of business, because you can apply for a lot of resources from the, from the Congress and, you know, from the private uh, uh, donors. And so it, it had become like a business in, in, to be anti-Cuban. And remember that uh, uh, Florida, Florida is the state where concentrate, you know, the majority of the Cubans that live in the U.S. And there is a big diaspora there that is, you know, anti-Cuban, you know, anti-revolution, anti, anti, uh, and uh, there, there is a motto in the U.S. policy that uh, you cannot win uh, the election if you don't, if you don't win Florida. So Florida has become like uh, here in Australia, a swinger, no, swing, swing state, no. Like a pen, I don't know. How, swing, no, it's a swinger. Yes. It's, a, it's a correct word. So this is very important. 
very important. So um, uh, has been advised by these anti-Cuban politicians, Bolton, uh, Marco Rubio, Marco Rubio, their fathers are Cuban. Um, uh, um, at the end, you know, uh, when you follow the, the Trump's, uh, you know, sayings about Cuba, there is, there is some papers that uh, the advisors, you know, put and have only to read because uh, even they don't know what, what he's saying about, uh, about Cuba. And this is the problem with the, this is a strong connection. It's a very powerful, um, you know, um, they are guiding um, the policy uh, towards Cuba. It's very dangerous. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. We'll leave the uh, Cubans uh, and what's going on there to uh, take us to the uh, comedy debate that happened uh, on Friday, uh, not last Friday, but the Friday before. The um, Green Left Weekly did their annual uh, fundraiser and uh, it was the comedy debate. Uh, Don't panic, we've got a planet B was the topic that they took up and uh, probably the... uh, Piste resistance of the uh, evening was Fiona Scott Norman's piece, so let's have a laugh. It's so rare in life you find a kindred spirit. Um, (laughs) Because I've thought about burning you all too, but the the carbon emissions will just push us over the edge. So we'll just eat you. So um, now our uh, final speaker for the uh, negative is Fiona Scott Norman, a performer, debater, writer, cabaret director who has a book about what she calls chickens but I know as chooks coming out with Pan McMillan in December. She also writes an ongoing increasingly cranky column in The Big Issue, co-hosts Two-Leggy Redheads with Rod Quantock at the Woodward Folk Festival. Yay! And when on Triple R she drank her own urine on air with Kate Langbrook. That's not in my CV. How did you get to do that? Going forward into the climate apocalypse, Fiona has zero useful skills to bring to the table beyond using her preternaturally white skin as a kind of canary down the coal mine for melanoma. Um, and drinking her own urine, which is going to come in very handy. So, ladies and gentlemen, our final speaker for the affirmative, uh, negative, please welcome Fiona Scott Norman. Press start. Uh, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, those who are both and those who are neither. How splendid to be at the Green Left Weekly Comedy Debate where we're debating the big issues, i.e. doing the work which should be done by our government. If they were, say, quality, like Jacinda Ahern, and not a giant man-baby-filled playpen still humping itself up against coal like a hormonal dog despite the world burning. Climate change is the most urgent issue facing us today and I understand urgency because I am a postmenopausal woman with impulse urination problems. <laughs> am I right, ladies? <laughs> yeah, I am. 
the men are going, that's not a problem, because A, they never have to queue, and B, the world is their toilet. <laughs> you are... That pool of water you thought was uh, coming off the tip of someone's umbrella? Not water. But we're not here tonight to dwell on my moist gusset. Although it's interesting how the palatability of that phrase shifts as you age. Hello, boys. Uh, nor on the insistency of my need to pee, which now arrives unexpectedly and violently out of nowhere like an immigration task force smashing down the front door of my bladder as though it hides a Muslim who has outstayed his visa. <laughs> We're here to discuss whether or not we should panic and whether or not there is a planet B. This should be a short debate because science. <laughs> there is no planet B. At best, if there's another planet which can sustain life, it's at microbe level able to sustain mould or slime or pathogens. So to be fair, Peter Dutton will be fine. <laughs> but even if there were a planet B, how would we get there? Wherever it is, it's too far. We don't have time. It took me an hour and a half to get here from St Kilda because it's raining. So should we be panicking? Abso-fucking-lutely! Please panic. Because if you panic, then you might take action. And if you take action, you'll be prepared for the climate apocalypse. And if you're prepared for the climate apocalypse, 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 then perhaps society will be. And I, despite contributing nothing useful, will be more likely to have continued access to precious limited resources, like food, water, and bottles of four-pillars Shiraz gin. I need you to carry me up with you as the sea waters rise like a bewildered polar bear on an ever-shrinking ice floe. I cannot stress how ill-prepared I personally am for climate change. I have no useful skills. I spend half my time rinsing out my underwear, and I've already had one skin cancer cut out this year. Of course I have. Look at how white I am. You can pretty much see my organs through my skin. Get me naked. Hello again, boys. And <laughs> I look like a Vietnamese rice paper roll. <laughs> but even, even if you only want to save me as some kind of white meat sacrifice to barbecue when shit's going down, you'd still better panic. Get on with it. Carpe diem. Tick tock. For the young people, that's the sound an analogue clock makes. <laughs> it signifies time passing and mortality. If you're drawing a blank, Google, Google rapper Flavor Flav from hip-hop group Public Enemy. <laughs> He's been wearing a kitchen clock like a boss around his neck since 1994 and says it's because we only have one life and we've got to live each second to our best value. Nice one, Flavor Flav. Drop it like it's hot. <laughs> Kanye West, on the other hand, says, I am God's vessel, but my greatest pain in life is that I will never get to see myself perform live. <laughs> and yet Kanye West is the genius. 
Go figure. I digress. Why are you wasting time worrying about who the new judges are going to be on MasterChef? We're all going to die. <laughs> People, our best and brightest. We have to seize the day and throttle it. Like the neck of a free-range turkey at an ethical self-actualization day farm. <laughs> where you have to kill your own meat while your sister makes spaghetti bolognese out of her own placenta. Seize the day, <laughs> right now, hard. Otherwise the turkey will suffer unnecessarily. And you've reached the end of another year and in Marianne Faithful's words in the Ballad of Lucy Jordan, you realize that not only will you never drive through Paris in a sports car with the warm wind in your hair, but Paris is underwater. The sports car is out of petrol and your hair's on fire. <laughs> For the young people, Paris is an heiress party girl from the mid-2000s. <laughs> Paris Hilton understands there's no time like the present. Paris said, the way I see it, you should live every day like it's your birthday. She also said, when Paris has to pee, Paris has to pee. <laughs> I'm with Paris on that one. <laughs> Look, I know panicking is un-Australian. It's not in our laid-back national character. This is why we have a she'll be right business as usual, steady as she goes, there's nothing to see here, praise Jesus, how good a job's government. <laughs> we are not an hysterical people, but we need to step outside our comfort zones, which are currently the size of our tightly clenched assholes, and get a bit worked up. The window of possibility is shrinking. We need a new leader, one who knows how to seize an opportunity. I think I know the person for the job. Remember Hobart DJ Astro Funknuckle Labe? <laughs> a man who sniffed the brief window he was offered and grabbed it with both hands. A man who was enjoying a shandy on the Hobart, Hobart foreshore two years ago while the marriage equality debate was raging saw Tony Abbott shaking hands with people and knew this moment would never come again. <laughs> Mr. Funk Knuckle introduced himself to Tony. He shook hands and he headbutted him. <laughs> and as he said to the press later, all it was is I saw Tony Abbott and I'd had half a skinful and I wanted to nut the cunt. <laughs> This is the attitude we need. <laughs> Australia, panic on. Thank you very much. Thanks, Fiona. Fiona Scott Norman, ladies and gentlemen. Sorry about the bad language. I hadn't quite remembered that there was uh, that little bit of uh, badness at the end there. But anyway, it was funny. And uh, coming up next is a little chat so that we can uh, get away from the the crack and popple of uh, bad mics. You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And we're just about to have a chat with Peter Arnett. Arnett. How are you, Peter? Very well, thank you. Yeah, you're going to give us an update on West Palpia and Solidarity and what's going on with the ULMWP um, with right. the upcoming Pacific Forum. Can you give us a little a bit of a... Because lots of things have been happening, hasn't it, in West Palpia? 
Yeah, certainly um, there's uh, lots of concern about ongoing violence in West Papua, especially since the end of last year in the Central Highlands. Um, the escalation of military and police activity there and the significant displacement of people as they've uh, um, 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 worked hard to wreak havoc within that, that area of West Papua. Um, the, the leaders of the Papuan people, the United Liberation Movement for West Papua, ULMWP, have been working hard with some Pacific governments, in particular the government of Vanuatu, uh, to get Pacific leaders to to uh, continue their commitment to take action um, on that uh, human rights violation situation in West Papua. And in particular, the Pacific Island Forum, um, um, which will be meeting in Tuvalu, one of the Pacific nations, in August, August the 12th to the 16th, will be uh, an opportunity for the leaders of those Pacific countries to express their ongoing commitment to um, action to address the violence in West Papua and their root causes. What are the root causes? Tell us what's why is why is it escalated at this moment? Uh, well, I suppose the root causes go back <laughs> over fifty years to when the uh, Indonesian government occupied West Papua after a deal struck um, between the United States and the then Dutch government which uh, had colonised West Papua and overseen by the United Nations and uh, the uh, Indonesian government security forces had used violence to try to suppress the desire of the Papuan people to be independent uh, and uh, the resistance of the Papuan people has continued for over 50 years uh, and the Indonesian government sees only one way to stop that resistance, and that's to use violence. I mean, it's kind of interesting because uh, a lot of uh, noise is being made around uh, the Uyghur situation, the Chinese uh, uh, taking over their land and mm. also uh, using the time-honoured method of relocating their own people to take over their lands. But this is exactly what the Indonesians have been doing in West Papua for that 50 years. Yeah, most definitely that uh, there's been a migration of Indonesians into West Papua to the point where uh, Papuans are a minority in their own land. And that's very evident, particularly in the coastal cities. It's not as as prom um, uh, prevalent in, in the highlands uh, where it's much more difficult to get easy access, but the Indonesian government is working hard uh, to overcome that obstacle to, to Indonesians getting into the highlands by constructing the Trans-Papua Highway uh, and, and, of course, the incident 
that occurred um, in December um, that escalated violence in the Central Highlands um, was focused on um, Indonesian workers uh, constructing that highway. So the local people are working together to push back against their dislocation and relocation. Is there any effort going on with the Indonesian... Is the Indonesian government... Is it government or army that is the most concerning? Well, we have to say government because the army uh, and the police are um, part of the Indonesian government uh, and the Indonesian government um, does not stop the Indonesian security forces from doing what they do in West Papua. Um, so they're both the same. And certainly the Indonesian government is not stopping what is happening uh, at the hands of their security forces and they're working overtime internationally to stop any efforts by the leaders of the Papuan people to press their case for an end to the human rights violations and for addressing those root causes of the ongoing violations and, and of course, their, their claim for self-determination. Now, the allocation of uh, large resource uh, elements to foreign companies, which are obviously uh, that parent wealth is going back to Indonesia, but also it includes anglo in. Uh, Anglo-American and I presume Australian companies that are involved mm. in these things mm. and the fact that uh, that's been going on and the fact that the uh, Indonesian hierarchy have done ma massive land grabs uh, in West Papua and uh, changing the uh, to monocultures and doing things like uh, creating, uh, what is it, um, hunting reserves so they've got people in helicopters driving riding along and shooting down on onto the landscape below this is just uh the beginning the road is the next stage yeah the road the road is going to um increase the capacity of indonesians to to rape and pillage almost to exploit um, the rich resources of West Papua um, for their benefit and not for the benefit of the people of West Papua. Um, but what needs to be understood is that um, the people of West Papua are being highly marginalised in this development that the Indonesian government is promoting um, across the world in their diplomacy uh, and in their efforts to stop the Papuan uh, cause being uh, promoted by the, the Papuan leaders, they they um, they are they are causing untold damage, and the development that they are so proud of simply doesn't help the Papuan people at all. It, it continues to marginalise them economically, socially, culturally. Now, can you tell us a little bit about the Pacific Forum? They're obviously getting heard at the Pacific Forum. The the Papuan leaders, yeah, uh, they they I don't think they'll be formally invited to be heard by 
the the leaders of the Pacific Forum, but they'll be present there and lobbying various governments. Uh, as I understand that the foreign ministers of the Pacific Islands Forum have met recently in Fiji uh, to discuss particular matters and to prepare some some draft statement that might be incorporated into the usual communique that's released by the Pacific leaders at the end of the summit. And the Papuans have been uh, in Fiji um, lobbying those foreign ministers uh, as they prepare that draft. And they'll be also in Tuvalu in mid-August to um, lobby various government representatives that are attending the PIF Leaders Summit. Okay, well, we'll watch that with some interest, Peter. Yes, we're certainly encouraging people to press the Australian government in particular and the Prime Minister, who will be obviously the leader at the PIF Leaders Summit, to, to ensure that the very strong language that the foreign minister's of PIF had drafted in relation to West Papua, ensuring that that there is um, an ongoing commitment to to action on the violence in West Papua and uh, in particular to get the um, Indonesian government to hurry up and um, make the arrangements um, to make possible um, their stated agreement to the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights coming in to West Papua and investigating the situation there. Okay, thank you. Good on you, thank you. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japarung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarung traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarung country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when after copping a bit of flack for ordering these non-white women, elected members of Congress, to go back to the rat-infested, disastrously governed holes they came from, a refreshing awareness of the state of the US, of the UN, of the US, of the world, seeing that's where they came from, big supremo Donald Trample the poor delivered the perfect rejoinder. Afro-American people have never been so happy with a USR Big Supremo, he announced with his usual modesty. A vox pop of Afro-Americans confirmed Donald's point. We have to be happy with a Big Supremo who is so open about his rampant racism, does nothing to cover it up, who concedes we are poverty-stricken and destitute, even if he says we are to blame for our own poverty and destitution.
And just a bit of bad luck for poor Donald after he proved he wasn't a racist by declaring this black Baltimore poly was racist. Racist Elijah Cummings, the Don ripped, and what more proof do we need? He doesn't need to elaborate. He's the big supremo. Racist Elijah's district is a disgusting rat and rodent infested mess where no human being would want to live. And he's probably correct, because most, if not all of them, probably wouldn't want to live there if they had a choice. But the bit of bad luck... It turned out the landlord of most of these disgusting rat and rodent infested messes is Donald's very own Middle East peace envoy and very own son-in-law, Jared Kuchno Rentcuts. Not only keeping the destitute destitute in Baltimore and goodness knows where else across the US of, but in his important diplomatic role for which he is so well qualified, he is also ensuring the Palestinian non-state non-people are also kept destitute, justice served for their evil terrorism and making sure they continue to become even more destitute. We await Donald's tweet praising Jared's, Jared's charity toward the Baltimore destitute and his charity would be even more effective if it wasn't for their racist Afro-American representative. Uh, yes, why is he racist, Donald? He attacked me, me, the most popular big supremo with darkies, uh, sorry, with Afro-American people ever, ever. Uh, yes, why would he do that? Because I pointed out how he's created a rat-infested hole. Uh, you've been to see it, no doubt. No, but Jared told me he's such a sensitive soul. Why, when they can't afford the rent, and sadly many of them can't, just won't get off their black asses. He just hates having to throw them out on the rat-infested streets. He's the most sensitive soul ever, apart from me. Now, I hope no one thinks there could be any truth in these corruption and ripping off accusations back here against the Crook Casino. Why, Lord Kerry of Waterhouse's scion, Jamie Puker, would be down like a ton of on anyone in his empire who did anything wrong. So it was a relief that our other lord, the one still with us, Lord Rupert of Wapping, through his Wapping sin, fingered the real crook. Socialist Party, Big State Supremo, the pejorative Dan. See, the alleged corruption and ripping off were exposed by the Spencer Street, Fairfax, no longer Spencer Street or Fairfax media opposition. So Lord Rupert came up with his own expose a few days after the story broke. P1 sensation. Jamie Puker and the Crook Casino are innocent. The big, big criminal is the pejorative Dan. It turns out that one night a few years ago at some function somewhere, Dan, bad, bad, pejorative Dan, shook hands with a Chinese business person he was introduced to. And that business person has been mentioned in the latest Crook Casino allegations. And it gets worse and more criminal. Also, some other Chinese person named once gave advice to some socialist poly or other, and therefore the whole corruption and ripping off allegations are down to bad, bad Dan. And these dreadful state socialists the people keep re-electing, despite Lord Rupert's daily attempts to expose just how dangerous and irresponsible they are. So if we were thinking there might be some truth in the allegations, as if, well, none of it is to do with or should reflect on the Crook Casino or Jamie. 
Lord Rupert's story, we could say story because fiction is always a story, Lord Rupert's story didn't get round to mentioning the caring business class government in Canberra, which the other lot story says is the government implicated in the allegations, but this shows Lord Rupert's sense of justice and balance. He wouldn't dream of being caught up in false accusations. Expose the real culprit. Bad, bad pejorative Dan. It's possible that Dan is also responsible for this illegal grassland clearing the Minister for Fossils Angus Taylor the story is caught up in, seeking a few changes from then Fossils Minister, now big economic guru Josh Friedev Icebergs, over a farm he just happens to have an interest in and just forgot to register on his pecuniary interest register, although in fairness to Angus, he declares he doesn't have to declare it because everyone knows he owns it anyway. And I'm pretty sure, and Lord Rupert should tell us any day now, that sometime back a few years ago somewhere, bad, bad pejorative Dan shook hands with a grass cutter. And poor Angus is totally innocent. And the Minister for Blaming the Socialists for Everything, Matthias Rotten Tudor, blamed the Socialists for denigrating poor Angus, who was just doing his duty, just representing the people in his rural, elect rural electorate who should have the right to destroy protected species. They've got to make a living. And Angus simply used his own example to represent those he represents. And after all, he is a constituent of his own constituent, Matthias explained. Speaking of, isn't it interesting that the government and the media now tell us that every bill is a test for the socialists, which they will fail if they do not agree with the government 100%. And thus far, to their credit, they haven't failed. Still in Canberra, I know we've just had our radiothon and thanks to all contributors and hate to hit you again so soon, but it is urgent. Poor Barnacle's situation is dire, skint, and two families to support. Every little bit helps. Please, donations to the Barnacle Family Support Fund, CARE 3CR. Meanwhile, convicted wage thief... Having said that, inadvertent wage thief, so-called celebrity thief, uh, so, sorry, sorry, celebrity chef, chef, George Columsparis Paying, declared in an emotional interview on one of those in-depth commercial so-called current affairs programs, which make a wading pool look like the Bermuda Triangle, I love this industry, I really do, but the love could fade if I have to pay the workers. Not having to pay them was the bit I loved. Let's iterate our usual amazement here. He blamed bookkeeping problems in each of his restaurants, not sure how many he's got, misreading the awards and all that, but it remains a mystery, a mathematical mystery, that pay er er errors involving hundreds of workers did not lead to one error of overpayment, a mystery of inadvertent, unintended errors. Now to a biological error. No, only joking, but in the no-need-to-comment department, see there's been this meeting of minds from countries like the US of and Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country sharing their spying on dangerous commies' information, or some of it, because can you really trust the others, meeting with a title including Intelligence. And our true blue Aussie representative was the Minister for Keeping Us Secure and Overseeing Concentration Camps Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Constable Peter Duffer.
Sure, sure, the possibilities for a smart line here are almost endless, but really, no need to comment. Other than, can't help myself, no matter how dumb the other intelligence participants may have been, how embarrassing for all true blue Aussies that they may have thought that skull and that excuse for a brain are representative of all of us. I didn't realise they were a nation of zombies. Imagine the depth of his, of his contributions to that conference, but then it is intelligence that leads us into wars on the coattails of the US of, like the blatant lies the US of told the UN of the US of the UN of the world about evil Iraq bulging with weapons of mass destruction, nuclear warheads on every street corner, and preparing to invade the whole world. So on that score, Constable Duffer would have been in his element. Constable Duffer did tell us True Blue Aussie had utilised the sink the boats bit of concentration camps razor wire and by yet again turning around a boatload of Sri Lankan no proper papers queue jumping illegal boat people. But we can be sure our train killers marauding the high seas would have undertaken all the requirements to assess if any of these people risking their lives were refugees fleeing persecution. As a country, Constable Duffer and his big supremo and sink the boat's predecessor, Scuttle the Mulash Sun, keep telling us, which treats these no proper papers lot with compassion and humanity an extension of their commitment to the dear baby Jesus. We would not just send them back to the persecution and torture they are escaping. Although it seems yet again this boatload contained not one genuine asylum seeker, just selfish, selfish people attempting to take advantage of our goodness, our compassion and humanity. Then again, finally, given how we treat people who are accepted as refugees, turning them around may be more compassionate. Wonder if the bad, bad pejorative Dan has ever shaken hands with a people smuggler. Yeah, I reckon he has. He's behind all this. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. And you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. And uh, have I got uh, Humphrey there? Are you there? You do indeed. Yeah, and uh, you want to talk about conservatism. Well, I thought we might, given that there's been a bit of chatter in the media about it. And indeed, The Economist, which is not a self-styled conservative publication, has just had a cover feature story called The Crisis in Global Conservatism. <laughs> and they... What, they're fascists? <laughs> they're fascists? No, not they're conservatives. Not fascist. They're not conservatives look, I mean, at all. Do, look, I'm sorry. That's the whole point of the discussion. Mm. If you can't tell the difference between a conservative and a fascist, I don't know what you've been doing in your political life for the last decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm a, I'm a, I completely agree with you. Conservatives are, uh, do have a po- point of view, but that's not well, what we're, we're actually getting from them. Well, there are various conservatives. And indeed, uh, one of the things we could start by saying is that in 1980, one of the leading conservatives in Britain, um, a man called Roger Scruton, published a book called The Meaning of Conservatism. And in it, on page 20, he says, and I'll read this to you, so it'll hopefully get this nonsense out of your head about conservatives being fascists. The Marxist point of view, Scruton says, derives from a theory of human nature that one might actually believe. 
Now, that view as to what he thought the Marxist theory was, was that it was a way of binding societies and people together through social action, through behaviours with each other. And that is the kind of conservatism that people like Roger Scruton and what you could divide and say are the small-c conservatives. But many of them, of course, belong to the large-c conservative political party. Um, so it's not simply a matter of saying big-c's and small-c conservatives. And indeed, given the current state of the world and what the economist referred to as the, as the crisis in conservatism, um, it, it grows out of the tumult that we could say at least of the last 10 years, and we could probably say going back s several decades, because if you go back to Thatcher, Thatcher was not a small-c conservative oh, no. in, in Roger Scruton's sense. Um, indeed, she splits the, the big-c conservative party and she divides the small-c conservatives around that that organisation. So those... You'd say she was an opportunist. Sorry? You'd say she was an opportunist. Oh, no, no, no. Far from being an opportunist, she saw one element of what the needs of global capital from the UK point of view were. Um, and a whole group of them, you know, saw that what had to be done, given the state that the British economy, from a, you know, from the capitalist point of view, was in through the 1970s. Um, they, I mean, she ran this line, you've probably all heard this saying, you know, her insistent question, when anyone was suggested to her that we might make him a, you know, send him somewhere, give him a job in the government, her question was, is he one of us? And an us, of course, was an economic dry. Someone who was going to cut back on public expenditure, except on the armament front, of course, um, was going to open up the economy, as they called it, um, and this alienated her from a large section of her own Conservative Party. Uh, people like the ex-Prime Minister, Harold, um, old Harold Macmillan, for example, people like that didn't see that this was the proper function of a Conservative Party, which was there from the days of Disraeli to put an end to a Britain which was divided, not just into classes, but as Disraeli said, into two separate nations, so wide was the divide. So those old conservatives thought that their job was to bring things together, whereas Thatcher's view uh, and the Dry's was that, no, this is the time to go to war at home and to drive them back. Um, and this was, I mean, this is what her economic policies were. Now, I mean, Scruton and people like that presumably voted conservative, you know, in 1979 and thereafter. But the kind of view... I mean, you can't ever imagine Thatcher or any of the people coming to this conference of conservatives next weekend that's, that's going to be in Sydney, um, so-called conservatives there, that's another view, that you can't ever imagine any of them saying, as he did, the Marxist point of view derives from a theory of human nature that one might actually believe. Uh, they are so remote from where the conservative movement was 40 or 50 years ago. So what? So are you arguing that uh, 
this new breed of conservatives, in inverted commas, are redefining conservatism? They, yeah. Well, they're moving it to a position which is more popularly described as being part of the, well, one could say a kind of neoliberalism um, and economic policy. They're taking it back back towards there. But on, on all things, I mean, as there is, a, you know, within the, the radical and the labour movement, I mean, there are divisions about which bit of it, because many of them, while they're conservatives on economic policy, they might also be fairly open on on other sort of well on questions of sexual politics because they're opposed to the state intervening in anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Liberta- libertarians. Well, you get you get that as well. But they wouldn't call themselves conservatives, obviously. Yet, in some areas of policy, they're going to overlap. And one of the intriguing things I think is that, from the point of view of the left. We also have to see how some of the kind of progressive policies that we would want to advance also overlap with some of the policies that one would associate with small c conservatism. Mm, yeah. I mean, the, the lovely, I don't know whether it's true, but you know, it could well be. There's a story that a journalist asked Bajelki Peterson what he thought it meant to be conservative. And Joe thought for a bit and said, Oh, he's a communist. What? Now, you think, how do we get from conservative to communist? Well, if you think that conservative for Joe strikes him, you think conservative, conservative, oh, conservationist. Ah. That's how he gets it. So, from, of course, we all know conservationists are communists. Anyone who gets in the way of a bulldozer is obviously a bloody commo. Mm. So, in a sense, the this link between the conservation movements so that you get a lot of people who, for, you know, a whole range of questions, um, who would be, you know, and are politically on the right, who find themselves, for one reason or another, involved in a conservation battle, which gets them out on the street protesting against oh, the yeah. government. Oh, yeah. No, that's completely correct. Um, the concept of, uh, you know, the philosophical notion of conservatism, that idea that, uh, what is it, you know, that famous saying, I think it was, that around, uh, in order to maintain, make oh, things that. the yeah. same. Yeah. yeah. What is that? Uh, well, yeah. I, in, well uh, <laughs> I won't do it in French, but it says, the, uh, in order for things to, um, things have to change so that they can stay the same. That's right. Now that's that's a conservative political you know kind of strategy, but quite a number of those small C conservatives are not opposed to change at all. What they're opposed to is a change that upsets the entire order all in one go, because they argue that you you don't know what the outcomes are going to be. You may end up as a result of that with something far worse than you started out with. Whereas if you have a lot of small changes, and in this sense, you could say the whole policy of the Fabian movement and under the British Labour movement and the Australian Labour movement has been conservative. The gradualism. Yeah, you know, step by step, and then we find out, and then we go on to the next one. Mm. Um, and, you know, I mean, there are areas in life, you know, in personal relationships, for example, um, in which... I, 
you know, the, the whole notion that you suddenly throw everything out and start again um, is clearly not one that's likely to make you happy or bring you any closer to where you want to be. And indeed, there's a, a man, a, a, you know, another academic, um, by the name of Michael Oakeshott, who wrote an essay in the 50s called On Being Conservative. Now, this essay <clears throat> is always trotted out by the conservatives who say, oh, well, we're not like those nasty ones. Mm -hmm. uh, because this essay, I mean, it's beautifully written. <clears throat> it's wonderfully, wonderfully persuasive. You know, when you're reading it through to hear the kinds of things that he's saying. But through it, I get a really strong sense of the defence of established values and as those values support the privileges of a small number of people. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's what you get from it. But nonetheless, <clears throat> there are two sentences in there that I've always agreed with and I'm sure most people on the left feel sympathetic with. One of them is, he says, well, well first of all, he says, being conservative is really a sensibility, it's a disposition towards how you live your life. That it's, that it's not a set of political policies at all. And one of these sensibilities is that you have a sense of relief when you look into a shop window and find there's nothing there you want to buy. <laughs> and I think, oh, yes, that's me, that's me. <laughs> uh, the other one, he says, is that part of that sensibility is that you can tell the difference between making friends and signing a business contract. Ah, uh, yes. You know, that, as he said, if... if, if, if well, but someone uh, else would I mean, call that humanist. Sorry, dear? Someone else would call that oh, yeah, humanist. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, these are, the, you know, these are the kind of value systems. I mean, some of them go back, you know, two or three hundred years, I mean, and they've been changed through there. But he's saying about the friendship thing, that if you go to your butcher in the days in which people were eating meat, if you go to your butcher in the 1950s, and he doesn't give you the kind of service that you want, you ask for one kind of meat and you get something else, you change your butcher. Mm. But that's not how we behave with our friends. Our friends, you know, if they, you know, for those of us who think of friends in these terms, you don't have a friend in order to serve your own interest. You know, the relationship you know, between friends is of a different order altogether. Um, and so within that conservatism, that small c British English conservatism, which does involve, you know, conceals quite often a lot of snobbery um, and certainly the defence of privilege, but within it, it does have some of these other things that appeal to people, as it does with the with the conservation of the natural environment. Um, people saying, you know, do I want this, you know, this massive change to come about in, in my physical environment? Or do I say, no, no, no. What we've got to do is to apply the precautionary principle. That the precautionary principle is that very strong conservative attitude of, well, let's try things bit by bit. And we'll have a bit of this and we'll see... If what kind of what kind of outcome it brings? Well, you know, uh, John Howard never. I mean, he's considered to be. You know, they talk about him as being conservative, but I've never seen him as a conservative at all. He no, he. 
But in these senses, I suppose what you saw in, in John Howard, with the one big exception of bringing in work choices, the one, that was the one big exception to having been so burnt in his earlier political career, uh, he became very cautious. Uh, and I don't know that that sort of caution in that political sense of your own survival fits into this conservative sensibility. It was only after the 2004 election when he saw that he had a majority in both houses that he could get work choices through that he plunged in mm. with that extreme version. And very quickly, he, even he realised that he had to pull back. And, you know, and, and, and so they, they changed bits of it, but it didn't save them in the end. But conservative in that sense, no, but only in this... I mean, I think what they're looking at is someone who who is you know, always managed to sound as if as somebody said about him as if he was adjudicating a debate rather yeah, yeah, than advocating yeah. a policy no that's exactly right so what you're are you saying that it's about methodology as opposed to actual uh ideology what I think, no I think it has all of those things and what the what the sort of scrutins of the world, and Michael Oak shot at his best, which isn't very much, but that this notion that it's a form, it's it really about how you view social relationships in a society. So that when Thatcher says there's no such thing as society, yep. this, you know, in, I, mean, I, mean, I would agree with her, because of not what she's saying, that, that society is not a thing. Society is indeed social relationships. That's right. It's an organic thing. Yeah. It's a, uh, yeah. But, you know, we'll, but she goes on to say there's no such thing as society. There are only individuals and families. Well, of course, there are individuals and there are households. We know that. What it leaves out, which was a real strong suit, she doesn't say, of course, well, there's also state apparatuses that I use on behalf of the big corporations. That's right. So... And that is, in a way, one of the fault lines between that went on inside the British Conservative Party um, for as long as she was there, between those people who felt that that was the function of the modern Conservative Party to hold the country together, as they saw it, whereas she and her group around her thought, no, we've got to the point where we've got to divide it very hard. Now, that's interesting because there's a film out called uh, Blinded by the Light, which is actually set exactly in 1987. And there was a bit in England and it's got this big um, sign, poster, with it's got Thatcher's face to the left and it's got uh, Tories uniting Britain. Yep. That was their slogan. Well, that's always the policy. I mean, I mean, every government says we're going to bring the people together, we're going to unite it. I mean, that's the thing. But it was the kind of policies that divided it. And the one, of course, we all remember on the left was the attempt to bring in the poll tax. Mm, that's right. You know, and that was in just the end, incredible. Well, it outraged, you know, you know I mean, it not only outraged, you know, the you know, the poor and the active and the labour movement and everybody yeah. there. It outraged a large number of people in the Conservative Party. And it did so because, if you know, a lot of us going to do, everyone was going to pay £10. Mm. And whether you, whether you were the Duke of Devonshire and owned half of London, yeah. 
or whether you were some poor bugger paying rent, you had to pay £10. And many Conservatives, indeed, all of those, you know, <laughs> eventually, a lot of these old Tory peers turn up in Parliament where they haven't been for ages and come down to vote against it. Yeah, fascinating um, stuff. Cause, uh, it, uh, and her poll tax is very similar, I'd say, to Amazon's... Um you know, where you, what is it, prime subscriber, where you give them free money for nothing? Well, Cash flow problems. Well, you know, I mean, this goes back to something much bigger. I mean, we can't deal with it now. But, yeah. you know, the whole notion of flat rate taxes yeah. that have been snuck in through things like the, or, um, well, it, it really began with the Medibank levy, mm. which was a flat rate tax. Yeah, you know, yeah. And they've snuck all kind of ways in which even in Australia, and, and a policies that are supposed to be fairly progressive. And it's also worth pointing out that Thatcher's intellectual mentor, Friedrich von Hayek, who, I mean, the book she swears by, or she did, of course, you know, was um, um, the book he wrote in 1944 called The Road to Serfdom, which, which was his attack on socialism. Um, and von Hayek wrote an essay called Why I Am Not a Conservative. Uh. And what he meant was that was, he said, look, conservatives are of some use sometimes in being able to slow down the road to serfdom. But they're no use at all in getting things done to go in the other direction. And that, of course, is what Thatcher, you know, I mean, she, if anything, I mean, if she sort of herself as anything, it was getting things done. It was that activism um, that von Hayek wanted. So, um, you know, as you said at the beginning, there's a lot of cross-currents within the socialist you know, movement as well as within the, the conservative movement and, and right across the spectrum. Would you say that it had something to do with, uh, ultimately, uh, it's to do with peop what people say is their stated aim? Their stated aim, and you know, and I think what the conservatives would want to stress—I mean, the Roger Scrutons and people like that—would want to stress. It's people who really don't have stated aims, but have a sense of, well, a kind of sensibility, a kind of feeling about how the world should be. I mean, I was struck by this, you know, something that you and I would never have spontaneously thought of. I there was a woman I know who's well into her 80s. She's just turned 90, in fact, now. So this goes back, she would have been, what, six years ago when, how, when, when Tony Abbott became Prime Minister. So she was, in, you know, she was 84 or something. And she'd been a Liberal supporter all her life. She'd grown up in that. Mm. She was outraged by Abbott, mm. partly by the policies, because she believed that one of the things you did as a you know, good old-style Menzies liberal, which you supported education. Yep. But the thing that really upset her, you sort of made her incandescent in a way that we would think, God, she said, you know, she, she said about Abbott, she said, that's no way to speak to people. Ah, yes, that's right. And I thought, you know, well, for that generation of people... Um, some of the stuff you're getting now out of these people who are coming to this <coughs> conservatism conference, so-called, next weekend, I mean, Margaret Thatcher would have been appalled to use that kind of language. 
um, or to speak about people in those kinds of ways, the kind of social media abuse. Mm. You know, yeah. I, mean, I, mean, I mean, no matter what the policies were, you didn't, you, you just didn't, you didn't talk like that. Now, of course, people blame social media, but of course, it starts well before then with the mass Murdoch press. Exactly, and also um, tr- uh, uh, the technology being the uh, primary uh, motivator for other people's ways of seeing. Uh, it, it, this brings to mind uh, George and Gilbert, you know, the um, English artists, the two fellows who uh, wear suits of, and have always oh, yes, wanted yes, to perform yes, as yes. artists. Yes. I, I heard them speaking here when they came. Mm. And uh, they they had great deal of fun saying that uh, it was possible for them to do almost anything because they wore a suit. You know? Oh yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. What a nice fellow! Because you're wearing a suit. Well, they thought it was hilarious. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I mean, it, well, with that surface, but they've, in a sense, in terms of the language suit of speaking politely and saying nasty things. That's right. I mean, that's not there anymore. Look, I think from our point of view on the left, because of the turmoil, and we'll finish up with this perhaps, because of the turmoil that's been going on, people are moving you know, from left to right and right to left and moving around inside the left and the right because they're trying to scramble for a world that isn't staying still, that is as tumultuous as Marx said it was going to be, the constant revolutionising of production, uninterrupted disturbance, everlasting uncertainty and agitation. That's the, that's the epoch of, of modern capitalism. And so you know, they're all being struggled around. But if you think, I can think of six big names, and for every big name there are tens of thousands of other people in the same situation. But six people who started out as conservatives, yep. some of them very conservative. Yep. One of them was Martin Boyd, another was Judith Wright, Patrick mm-hmm. White was another, and then there was Donald Horne. Um, really? yeah. you know, I mean, these are people who, you know, are, who are kind of seen as ending up, well, not on the far left, but certainly no, well pre- to the left. And they're prepared to stand up and fight. Yeah. But they didn't start there, and sometimes, as in Patrick White's case, I mean, he was he was you know he was fifty five before before the change began to happen. Mm, that's right. So our job on the left is to be alert to this, and as people change and move across, uh, to be able to listen to them and to bring them and many many more people across to our side of politics as well. Mm, yeah, good good lesson. Okay, thanks, mate. All right, Annie. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, well, there you go, conservatism. And uh, we are at the end of the program. This is uh, Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, we started off listening to the uh, Cuban ambassador uh, and uh, what's going on. Uh, interestingly enough, the things that he was talking about, I don't think have really filtered through to the mainstream media here. So keep an eye on what's going on or ear to what's going on in 3CR land because... We uh, seem to be getting the good oil. Uh, moving right along, we uh, got to the comedy debate, the yearly uh, Green Left weekly uh, newspapers um, uh, fundraiser, lots of comedy. You can go online to become a subscriber for Green Left Weekly. We've 
Green Leaf Weekly, and also on Fridays on 3CR, the breakfast show. They run the breakfast show on uh, 3CR. Uh, we moved on to this is uh, to what's happening for the West Palpians. This is the week that was, and then we went to conservatism. Coming up next is uh, the uh, Asia Pacific Current. So we're going to go out with a band that ca- they were here not very long ago. They came to uh, uh, May Day in uh, Melbourne. Uh, I'm an Alien by Rebel Diaz. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.